Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, I just wanted to remind everyone about the truly fantastic deal that we have with AdamandEve.com. This is the deal that you, the fans, are most consistently writing to us about saying, hey, that was a really great deal. <laughs> that was especially a case of truth in advertising. Adam and Eve has millions of satisfied customers. They've sponsored safer sex education all around the world, especially Africa. And they have thousands and thousands of products to choose from. If you look, for example, at their prostate massagers and G-spot massagers made from glass or metal, very high quality stuff and very affordable. And right now, you get 50% off just about any item, free shipping, and a free extra surprise. Just go to adamandeve.com today and remember the offer code to use at the checkout is RISK. Also... I want to tell you about my good friend, Matan Griffel, and his website, OneMonthRails.com. Now, Matan is a brilliant guy. I first met him when he took our storytelling for business workshop at the Story Studio, and now he has this incredibly successful business. One Month Rails is the best-selling online coding class. It's a class that teaches you how to code, how to create your very own website all by yourself in just one month. 
Matan is an expert Rails teacher. He's taught at NYU, Bloomberg, and Forbes. You can stop waiting to find that techie, that that co-founder for your business. You can do it yourself now. And the best thing about the course is that you actually build a real app. By the end of one month Rails, your app will be live. You'll have built it from scratch. If you go to the site, you can see all the student success stories. Some of them are really moving. Matan was telling me about this guy, Mike Wyatt, a former factory worker in Missouri, who is now making double his salary with the skills he learned in one month from One Month Rails. There's hours of easy-to-follow videos, hands-on exercises, and meetups. So sign up now at onemonthrails.com slash risk. That's onemonthrails.com slash risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is jonathan gear behind me now calling this (laughs) sorry i had to get some um gremlins out of my jowls we're calling this week's episode boys and girls uh there's four stories of love between the ladies and the gents. Now, you can imagine we're about to have a slightly emotional roller coaster ride of a trip in the coming minutes. 60 of them, more or less. So, we're getting all heteronormative today, as they say. In a little bit, we're gonna hear from the brilliant comedian and actor DC Pearson. You might know from the sketch comedy group Derek Comedy. But before that, my good friend Brad Lawrence, a real fixture in the New York storytelling scene, a great host. He hosts a lot of burlesque shows in town. He was the co-host of the show And I Am Not Lying for a while. Regular host of The Moth. But his even greater gift, as you will soon see, is for storytelling. And here he is now. This is Brad Lawrence with a story we call... Let me sleep on it. I was uh, 23 years old and working at a bookstore in St. Louis. And one of the main features of this bookstore was this sort of grand stairwell that connected the two floors. It was really late at night. We had closed the store, and after closing, we were all cleaning our various sections and whatever else. And I was assigned the uh, mystery section, which is at the bottom of the staircase. And I'm cleaning the mystery section all by myself. 
and I have this song stuck in my head. And so I am singing to myself as I'm cleaning the section. Let me sleep on it, baby, baby, let me sleep on it. Let me sleep on it and I'll give you an answer in the morning. And I'm doing this when all of a sudden I hear from the top of the grand staircase, someone, a female voice, reply, I gotta know right now, will you love me? And this is how I meet Carrie. And I step out from the mystery section and I look up and she's coming down the stairs and we proceed to do the entire duet until we are meeting on the landing at the bend in the staircase sort of face-to-face, doing the, it was cold and lonely, like doing the entire nine yards. And as we're doing this, our fellow employees are now sort of peeking furtively out from the stacks of books, like forest animals, and they're seeing us do this, and they're thinking what they will be thinking for the next three years. And that is, when are these two going to do it? This became an inseparable friendship which was not hurt at all by the fact that Carrie kind of fell into exactly everything I look for in a woman. And it's hard for me to say if Carrie fit the ideal or if Carrie made the ideal the minute I saw her. She had a sort of Holly Golightly kind of thing to her. If Holly Golightly could potentially kick your ass and make you feel bad about yourself at the same time. She wasn't saccharine. She was sharp and smart. And she was not afraid of letting you know that immediately. And... This just set me on my heels and kept me there, which apparently was exactly where I wanted to be because I followed her around like a puppy dog. And she seemed more than content to have me and would in fact like sort of arrange things for us to do, activities, mainly things that she thought I would hate. She kind of seemed to like to watch me get worked up. Apparently I entertained her most when I was angry about what I had just seen. Performance art is usually bad in major arts capitals. By the time performance art, installation performance art, has filtered down to St. Louis, Missouri, you're not getting grade A installation performance art. I barely remember what they did. It involved people in tights. I went sort of blind with rage upon seeing the people in the flesh tone tights. And to this day, I have like a real aversion to anything that mimics skin. I just find it horrifying. And I think that's probably what I was ranting on that made Carrie think, we'll do this every weekend. We were spending all of our time together. And all of this brought about a kind of two-person language, a sort of code, a set of nods and facial expressions and inside jokes and little gestures and you know we both knew what those things meant and this made us insufferable to be around for anyone else and we would go out with other people we'd go out with co-workers and 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 our friends and they would be like you guys are so annoying and and by the way when are you going to just go ahead and do it and get it over with so all this annoyance you've cost us will pay off and my friends would say, you got a crush on Carrie. My girlfriend, Lee, would say, you've got a crush on Carrie. <laughs> and I would say, I do not have a crush on Carrie. Carrie's my friend. We're just friends. I don't have a crush on Carrie. Relax. And I would think to myself, I am so in love with Carrie <laughs> that I don't know what to do. And I know that that went both ways. Because that tension would build. It would build to the point where, separately, on two separate occasions, both of us started fights with one another. 
just so we could get away from the situation. The fights were started over ridiculous things. Because at that point, you've got to do something. The tension is built so much, and you either have to commit and do what you really want to do, or you have to allow yourself to escape and stage a conflict that allows you to run away. And both of us did that. And we didn't speak for a month each time. And then that month would go by, and one would call the other. I'm really sorry. I really miss you. There's a foreign film you'll hate. Well, let's go see it next weekend. <laughs> and so off we'd go. And this was the pattern of things, if not particularly satisfying. It was sustainable for a while. And then at some point, but my girlfriend Lee and I, we hit the skids. This dovetailed nicely with the fact that Lee's work was transferring her to Michigan. And it came down to the point where we'd been fighting for months. But we both knew she was going to leave soon. And I don't know the logic behind not breaking up. <laughs> There's a sort of secret agreement we both just kind of hold on until she left. And then we wouldn't have to do anything painful we couldn't forgive one another for. And here we are. It's about three days before she's going to leave. And I go hang out with Carrie. And you would think, if it really meant something, you'd be spending all of your time with the person who's getting ready to leave. But no, I'm making time for Carrie. He'll still be here when Lee's gone. And we go out and we see a movie and we have dinner. And we drag the evening out as we always do. We end up in a park. walking around a park in the middle of the night and having this long conversation and there was something in the air or maybe some you know Lee's impending departure I don't know what it was but for some reason this this conversation suddenly took a turn towards what was really going on what was really there a turn we had always avoided and it just kind of comes out and how it finally comes out is that we've, we've walked the entire park. We've worked our way back around to our cars. And we're standing by the cars. And I finally say to Carrie, it's just when you know that there is something else, someone else for you, do you know what I mean? And Carrie looked me in the eyes. And she said, yes, I do. And that's it. Everything had fallen away. All of the maneuvering around this we had done for three years suddenly just dropped. And there is this one foot of empty space between me and her. And all I have to do to have everything I've wanted for three years is reach through that one foot of empty space. And instead, I fucked it up. I looked at her and I said, I cannot do this right now. I have to end things the right way with Lee. And this is blinding stupidity. I can't do this right now. If not right now, when? Three years. And if not right now, now's it now's the time but I I say this thing and when I say it to her I see Carrie's eyes drop and I know I know for a fact in this moment 
that this is the last opportunity I was ever going to get at this. This is the last opportunity I was ever going to get with Carrie at all, in any way. Because I know right there in that moment, I know I've lost Carrie. I know her very well. And I know she has this kind of rom-com idea of romance that she uses as a shield. And she's a smart woman. She knows it's bullshit. But she also knows that if she has that up, if someone can't complete the rom-com perfect moment romantic formula, if they don't do that, then she knows she's never making a mistake. And the thing that Carrie dreads the most is making a mistake. And she let her guard down, and it turns out, to both of our horror, that I was a mistake. And I know she can't have that, and I know I've lost her, and I'm right. Because I see Carrie one more time after that. And I never see Carrie again. And this haunts me for years. Every time I go through a breakup, every time I find myself alone, feeling miserable and sorry for myself, I think back on Carrie and on that one moment that night in the park and how I screwed that moment up. And when I tell myself in those dark, dark nights when I am so alone and so sad, is that the reason I will be so alone and so sad forever and ever and ever is because I had the one, she was right there within my reach, and I fucked it up. And because I fucked it up, I am doomed. And then I met a girl and I fell in love and I got married. I met her while I was wearing a dress and she was wearing a mummy outfit um, that she was actually stripping out of. She was go-go dancing at a bar. <laughs> I determined not to hit on the go-go dancer until I was really good and drunk. And then I got really good and drunk. And she humored me. She consented to go on a date. And the rest really is history. I mean, it, it, it was just sort of when you, when you find someone who rearranges your entire world and, you know, introduce you to a whole different side of life and you realize, oh, this is what I've been looking for the entire time. You stop dwelling on every mistake you've ever made and start thinking about every possibility that lies before you. That's the huge difference. I had that now, and it was wonderful. But then Facebook does the thing that Facebook does. And suddenly, thanks to the internet... I have reason to think about Carrie again, and I have not thought about Carrie because I'm not thinking about my mistakes. But now, thanks to Facebook, I'm confronted with this, and I have to sort of think about Carrie again. And I'm thinking about her, but how I'm thinking about her has changed because my mistakes are not, they don't have romantic comedy stakes anymore because I'm not living that fantasy. Nowadays, when I make a mistake, she lets me back up and try again until I get it right. It's never make or break. About two or three months into us being together, we were at a bar, and she was talking to a guy. I knew they had gone on a couple of dates. And then when I walked up to say hello, she introduced me as her friend. And it was a hissy fit. <laughs> let's be frank. It was an unseemly scene. 
and I marched out, all indignant, certain I'd been wronged. Basically, in reality, she loathed the guy, didn't want to discuss her current relationship or how that had come about. She basically was like, being polite, getting out. I walk in for like the tail end of that, take one thing wrong, have a fit, and she basically just kind of watched me spin my wheels, let it all sort of peter out, told me everything I've just told you, and then waited for me to grovel the appropriate amount. And then it was done. And it was over and we moved on. She was entirely confident I had learned whatever lesson I needed to learn. Nothing was ripped asunder for all times because we would just move forward. And so now, confronted with Facebook and Carrie again and sort of thinking about that life and that time and that night, I don't think about it in the same way because the thing I didn't understand when I was making that horrible mistake is that real love is about being allowed to make mistakes. And anything else is just a crush. So this story takes place the summer after my freshman year of high school. All you need to know about me at this time in my life was that A, I had just joined my high school's drama club my freshman year and I was enamored. And the second thing you need to know is that two or three years previous to this story, when I was in middle school, I was on a bowling team with a few of my uh, friends that were also in the gifted and talented reading program with me at school. And on this bowling team, in between frames, all of us guys would go back to where the balls are and the, and the tables where you eat uh, really good bowling alley fries. We, for luck, in between frames, would kiss a picture of the X-Files' Gillian Anderson... <laughs> which I had ripped out of a Entertainment Weekly that I had bought because the cover featured the X-Files' Gillian Anderson. <laughs> so that's all you needed to know about me was that it happened just like two years before this story. Like, if I need to follow that up by saying at this point I was a virgin and I still hadn't even really kissed a girl, you're way too optimistic. Uh, but... I had a friend at this time in my life named Matt, who was also in my high school's drama club, and he was a senior when I was a freshman, so he had just graduated from high school, and we had become friends, me and my group of friends, young kids in, in the drama club, had become friends with his older group of drama club friends because they realized when we came into drama club that we were as funny as they were, and so they had to ally with us or else we might destroy them. <laughs> I don't, I'm not just making that up to sound cool, but it does sound pretty cool. Uh, he actually told us that when we decided to like all become friends. And then we celebrated and consecrated our new friendship with a 12-hour marathon of the video game Goldeneye. <laughs> so Matt uh, had a girlfriend named Kim, and Kim was a year younger than Matt. So at this point in the story, she's going into her senior year of high school, and Kim was also in drama club. And like a lot of drama club girls, she kind of, when she would get around her friends, would sort of turn into a Pokemon. Like they had their own little secret language of like bleeps and bloops that would be interspersed with rent lyrics. But just... <laughs> 
despite her Pokemon-ness that she would have sometimes around her friends, she was a deep girl. Like, she had the poem Invictus on the wall of her bedroom, which is this thing that's about, like, dark is my soul from pole to pole or whatever. It's, like, intense. Like, she she liked the second Ben Folds 5 album more than the first Ben Folds 5 album. Like, she was deep. You know what I mean? She was, she was deep. And this summer, after my freshman year, Kim decided that she and I were going to be best friends. And she would come over to my house every day after she got off work at Cold Stone Creamery. And so she would come over and she smelled like ice cream. And we would drive around in her car, which was this little blue 80s hatchback that she had christened Scanny. Because high school girls in theater club think that they need to name their cars or else their cars will be sad. And... (laughs) And so we're driving around one day and uh, the song, I, I think it's called Head Over Feet by Alanis Morissette is playing on Kim's like tape, mixtape that she had made. And uh, there's a line in the song where Alanis Morissette says, you're my best friend, best friend with benefits. And Kim turns to me and goes, that's like you, you're my best friend, no benefits though. And I was like, ha. <laughs> Because I really, really wanted there to be benefits. But I couldn't say that because she was still dating my friend, Matt. And I was convinced that Matt was a really terrible boyfriend to Kim. I was mostly convinced of this because Kim never stopped telling me what a terrible boyfriend he was. According to Kim, Matt's cardinal sins were drinking and talking to friends. Like, he drank too much, and he talked to his friends too much. And in my head, when she would tell me this, I would just be like, well, if I was with you, I would never drink because I'm underage. And so, duh. And I would never talk to friends. That's ridiculous. Like, who would do such a thing? I would never talk to too many friends if you were mine. And so... A good example of what their relationship was like, according to Kim, was one night, all of these drama club kids came over to my house for a movie night, and we were going to watch Mallrats. And Kim told me later on AOL Instant Messenger, because it was that summer, that (laughs) that during the movie, she had wanted to watch the movie, but Matt kept trying to make out with her, and she kept being like, no, I'm trying to watch the movie. And in my head, I was like, oh my God, this girl is even more perfect than I realized. She would rather watch a movie, then kiss. Me too. (laughs) Not that I've ever been given the option, but I would like to think that if I were given the option, I would always choose movies over kissing because movies have always been there. And that is loyalty that deserves to be rewarded. So one night... Uh, oh, and, and I guess another important thing to know about our relationship is that she, that summer, it was this like auspicious, just like wonderful summer of my life where she turned me on to two very culturally important things to me at that point, which were um, Weezer's The Blue Album and Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, big dip in applause, rightfully so. Be like, woo, Weezer, ooh, Ayn Rand. Correct. When given the choice between Weezer and Ayn Rand, always choose Weezer. Um, even the later stuff. And, <laughs> but so into Weezer's The Blue Album was I, and so into Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged was I, that I immediately went home and downloaded all the individual tracks for Weezer's The Blue Album off of Napster, because it was that summer, and, and in short order had convinced myself that the first song on Weezer's The Blue Album, My Name Is Jonas, is actually about Atlas Shrugged. I was like, the workers are going home. What more evidence do you need? 
That is a joke that requires you to have knowledge of both Weezer's The Blue Album and Atlas Shrugged, the Venn diagram of which the circles are in separate counties. Uh, but so it was that summer. It was that summer, and it was, it, was all, it was all very alive for me. And one night, Kim comes over to my house. It's really late at night. I'm probably up listening to Weezer's The Blue Album and being like, this is about the Fountainhead. And she shows up at my doorstep, and she's wearing this kind of like black and white dress, and she's clearly been crying. And she's like, can I come in? And, then she, and I'm like, of course. We go up to my family's uh, playroom, and she tells me that Matt at the party had like done something to make her cry, like he had drank too much or talked to too many friends. <laughs> and um, so we end up with her laying across my crossed legs. I'm sitting cross-legged on the floor, She's like crying and I'm trying to be what I thought of at the time as being sensitive, which was really just like being like, yeah, you know, and but I'm, I'm doing what I think of as being sensitive. Then at a certain point, I just like screw up my courage and I don't know why I do it, but I reach down and I lift up like her blouse or whatever she's wearing, like just a little bit and revealing just like this like strip of stomach. And I, I bring my head down and I start just like kissing this strip of stomach. And she doesn't stop me. So I keep doing it. Just keep kissing her stomach. And she doesn't stop me. So I keep kissing her stomach. And I'm kissing her stomach for like a really long time. And then at a certain point, we realize that my arms, the way I'm leaned over, my arms are kind of like trembling. And I'm like, is that okay? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. Because as I've come to learn, being intimate with me requires a very high tolerance for male trembling. <laughs> and then at a certain point, she gets up and she pulls her shirt down and she leaves. And then the next day, we have this like summit. We're like, what are we going to do? Like, we just did this thing, but I still want to be friends with you, but we can't cheat on your boyfriend. We can't do that. That would be wrong. We can't cheat on your boyfriend. But I want to do that again because that was so great. And so we reached this, like, treaty of Versailles where we could somehow still do stuff without it technically somehow in our convoluted teenage Ayn Rand-filled heads without it being cheating on her boyfriend because I guess that would be anti-life or something. I'm really riffing a lot of Ayn Rand jokes here. I hope you guys appreciate it. And so what we determined in this treaty of Versailles is that we could only only do what we had already done, which basically amounted to just me continuing to me kissing her stomach. <laughs> which, if you think about it, is kind of brilliant because if anybody walked in on us doing that, they would just be like, they couldn't be mad at us because they would just be like, oh, these kids are idiots. <laughs> they don't know how it works. And so we keep doing it. We now our every hangout is fraught with the possibility of illicit stomach kissing. <laughs> The white guy with dreads in the front row has been nodding emphatically this entire time. He knows what I'm talking about. Uh, and so, so after a while, like the stomach kissing repertoire after a number of hangouts is becoming like a little too well rehearsed. You know what I mean? It's like, hello, DC. Hello, stomach. How are you? Mwah, mwah, mwah. You know, like we get it. And then one night we're in my bedroom and it's dark and she's laying across my bed, moonlight coming in through the window and I'm doing the stomach kissing repertoire and 
at a certain point, I again screw up my courage and I just like bring her shirt up even more past the point that I had. Like I, you know, it's like appeasement doesn't work. I'm taking more, you know, I'm invading the Sudetenland, you know? And I pull her shirt up to reveal her bra-bound boobs, but only after doing the sexiest thing that a gentleman can do, asking. I'm really glad he agreed with that part too. We can all agree it was not certain. Uh, so there they are, the boobs, the bra-bound boobs. And I, I, in my memory, they're in a leopard print bra, but that may have just been added after the fact by the part of my brain which controls tackiness. And it's great, but I'm very, I'm treating them very, you know, awkwardly a little bit. Like it's, but I'm trying to not be awkward. I'm trying to seem skilled. It's a little like, like I'm like an old white dad whose daughter has just brought home like a new cool black boyfriend. You know what I mean? And I'm like trying to show that I'm down. But the more I try to show that I'm down, it's clear that I'm not fucking down. But I just keep doing it anyway. And I think she eventually tires of that awkwardness and that weird, like stilted teenage boy reverence. And she, she just like sighs and she reaches down and she pulls the bra up and there they are in, in all of, of, their, of their glory and I start engaging with them I start engaging with the, just the bare uh, breasts and it's so awesome but it also has that feeling of kind of like I don't know like meeting the Japanese investors you know what I mean like there's a you know this might be very lucrative for all of us if we obey a very strict set of customs okay how are you alright everything's going according to plan <laughs> And it's great. And so that's now added to the repertoires, like stomach kissing and boob touching. And that's, that's integrated into the program. And then that keeps going. And that's every hangout. Now we're doing all of those things. And eventually that becomes too well rehearsed. And, and, and by the end of the summer, that's a little bit like, like the 20th year of Cats on Broadway. You know, like, we can do it. It's muscle memory. We can get high before the show. Like, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. They're not, they're tourists. They're not going to know the difference, you know. And so... One afternoon, we're over at her house, and it's Labor Day, and her, her dad and her brother are gone, and, and he's a single parent, so there's nobody in the house, and we're alone, and we're doing the stomach kissing and the boob touching, entirely too well rehearsed, and then at a certain point, without any warning or fanfare whatsoever, she just goes down on me, like, without a hype man even coming out to, like, get the crowd pumped. She just does it. She just goes into it, and it is so, so terrible but like so was the first airplane you know like yeah maybe the first airplane was like one wing was bigger than the other and it was awkward and it barely got off the ground and it was way too heavy on the teeth but that that was the first step that airplane was the first step uh, towards mankind finding his destiny among the stars so so attention and reverence must be paid to that blowjob and then we got up and we put our clothes on and we went and had lunch at KFC. <laughs> Throughout the entire summer, I'm telling Kim, I'm in love with you. Break up with Matt. Break up with your boyfriend. Break up with Matt. And finally, right as school starting again, she's like, you know what? Fine. And so she leaves my house. She goes out and gets in Scanny. One night, she drives Scanny over to Matt's place because he's moved back in with his parents for the summer. And she's like, you know, she, she comes back afterward. And... She seems, like, upset with me, but she's like, I did it. And I don't really understand why she's upset with me at the time. And I'm like, how did it go? What happened? And she just tells me, she's like, well, I mean, he kind of just, like, took it. He seems kind of resigned to it. And um, as I was leaving, he asked if he could see 
my back because I guess he said his, my back has always been like his favorite part of me. Um, which, I mean, it does actually kind of make sense because if you think about it, I had sort of been colonizing her front all summer. But again, she seemed sort of upset and, and I didn't understand why. And now throughout this entire time, throughout the stomach kissing and the boob touching, part of our Treaty of Versailles was that we would never kiss on the mouth. We had done everything I just described and a lot more awkward, weird stuff that you don't do once you can have actual sex because it is bullshit. (laughs) Without kissing on the mouth at all. And eventually, after we officially decided we were together, we did kiss on the mouth, but we didn't kiss on the mouth that night, even though she was technically broken up with her boyfriend, because we wanted it to be special. We wanted to save it and preserve it and have it be when we were both in a good mood. And thinking back on it now, I don't remember kissing her for the first time. I don't remember that first kiss at all. I think maybe because this experience kind of programmed my brain to only want to remember the things that are like illicit or dark or messed up because they seem worth remembering because they seem dramatic and the stuff that's all above board and cool and fine like isn't really worth remembering because it's not necessarily a good story. And it's weird that all, all of my sexual milestones kind of happened under this like friendship threatening like sword of Damocles of us really cheating on her boyfriend but I wouldn't have had it any other way now that I look back on it because I was never going to be one of those guys that was just going to like round all the bases at once like pumping my fists like while being drunk at a party because I didn't drink I wasn't of age Uh, so how could you you know um I wasn't going to be that guy. So it was kind of like all of my sexual milestones. I really had to like pay attention because they were so, we had to really like go into them with such trepidation because it was all part of our ever expanding, secretly cheating on her boyfriend repertoire. It was kind of like my sexual development was like a a menu that had been programmed by this like really sadistic chef who was like, try the boobs, you know? And I did. I did try the boobs. I, I tried the shit out of the boobs. And I told this story... I told this story one time at a stand-up show and I got off stage and I felt like I'd really poured my heart out. I had just started telling the story like I hadn't uh, thought about it in years and, and I got off stage and, and I was just like spent and another comic on the show was like, dude, I love that boob story. <laughs> and I was kind of heartbroken because I thought this was my wonder years. You know, this is my defining everything about myself pretty much. And I was like, oh, maybe it's not the wonder years. Maybe it is just a boob story. And then I was telling the story in preparation to be on this show the first time I did it to the guy that runs the show, Kevin Allison, and I was telling him the story and I said that part about, oh, maybe it's not the Wonder Years, maybe it's just a boob story. And Kevin was like, no, it is. It is your Wonder Years. (laughs) And I was like, well, when a guy named Kevin tells you that something is your Wonder Years, (laughs) you have to listen. Thanks, guys. I'm NDC Pearson.
risk. This is Dan Kroll behind me now. And we just heard from D.C. Pearson, who has a new novel out that's getting a lot of attention. It's called Crap Kingdom. Somewhat of a, a fantasy novel and a young adult novel. And from all reports, absolutely hilarious. Well, we have a very exciting fall lined up at the Story Studio. On September 5th, we have an advanced storytelling workshop, a level two, six-session course with David Crabb. Let me tell you, everyone who takes a class with David Crabb comes back to me and just raves about the guy. A lot of folks that have taken our basic storytelling workshop with me then go on to take a class with David as well. He's also teaching a level one, a six session that starts on September 11th. And then there's a two-day storytelling workshop with Don Frazier, our newest faculty member. Dawn is an absolute joy. She has toured the country with The Moth's uh, touring show. She's done a ton of public speaking at uh, colleges and corporations. Her two-day storytelling workshop is at the Story Studio on September 14th. And then on September 16th, I am debuting this brand new six-session workshop that we're calling Storytelling for Personal Growth. Find your voice and get what you want. If you're in New York and you feel like you're a beginner to this whole storytelling thing. Maybe you just want to be more social or more emotionally expressive in your everyday life. Maybe you find it challenging deciding what stories you'd like to share and what they really mean. This is a workshop that creates a safe and nurturing space for this cathartic and empowering journey into the beginner level of storytelling where you learn how to do the journaling and exercises for people who are new to being up in front of people, using your body, your voice, your face. I promise you, you will feel more confident about your day-to-day -day communication and building stronger connections with others. So look for that storytelling for personal growth class if you're a real newcomer and want to give it a, you know, dip your toes in the pool. I'll also be teaching our regular six-session level one in New York starting on September 18th and our regular two-day storytelling workshop on September 21st. And then in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles for the first time ever, Beowulf Jones, the producer of Risk Out There, will be teaching a September two-day storytelling workshop. That will be super, super fun. Beowulf is a terrific storyteller, a great guy, and we're very excited to have him joining our faculty. Finally, I'm thinking of creating a workshop that would just take place maybe in three hours time, an evening, called Storytelling for Dating. A lot of single people get together in a room and share small, entertaining stories where you kind of, you know, learn to loosen up, be yourself, practice expressing those parts of yourself that you really love and that someone else should do. If you're in New York and you're interested in the Storytelling for Dating workshop, write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. I want to see how many people are interested, and I'll try to put a first one together. To learn about all of these workshops and many more sorts of offerings from the Story Studio, go to thestorystudio.org. 
And any questions you might have, you can just write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. In a little bit, we will hear a story from the great Selena Kopic. But before that, a Risk fan who did a storytelling workshop with me one-on-one over Skype, Nina Davis, shared this story with me, and I asked her if we could record it. Nina, as you will soon find out, is just an absolutely lovely, wonderful lady. It's been a joy coaching her, and we're very grateful that she shared this one with us. So this is Nina Davis now with a story we call Remember You Like a Child. Before I turned 14, it was 1973. It was the summer between eighth grade and ninth grade, and we were moving in just a few days from New Jersey to Fort Lauderdale. And my mom decided that she wanted to go out to the Jersey Shore and say goodbye to some really close friends. And so we arrived in the night on July 3rd. And we must have gotten there so late that I didn't even remember coming into the house. And when I woke up in the morning, there was so much light coming into my bedroom, just streaming in. And my bedroom had sliding glass doors. And I went and I stood there and I could see the ocean. So I got dressed really fast because I wanted to explore. And I I walked outside, there was a huge wraparound porch. I was on the second floor. And as I started to walk down the steps, there was a house right next door and a boy was coming out of his house. I got down to the bottom of the steps at the very same time he had left his house and was walking across the beach. We met there right in the middle between the two homes and we just stood there. This was the most beautiful boy I had ever seen. He had chocolate black thick straight bangs and he was a little bit taller than I was and he was solidly built and we just stood there looking at each other and it was as if a bubble had just come down from the sky and surrounded us. It was as if nothing around us was happening. We could look at each other and and we were total strangers to each other. But it was this peaceful, peaceful, at ease feeling. And then Franco burst out of the house. Franco was the son of my parents' closest friends. We were the exact same age. We had essentially grown up together. And he was so excited that I was there for the day. And he came running towards us and he said, Nina, Nina, this is David. David, this is Nina. And we're going to do so many great things today. And he was rattling on about all the things that we were going to do. And David and I are just standing there, staring into each other's eyes. And I swear, I felt as if I was falling in love. 
to this point in my life, as far as boys were concerned, I had boys that were friends. Boys that I liked, I was so awkward and clumsy, but none of this was happening with this boy, David. I felt none of that. I wasn't nervous. I felt so calm and in unison, as Franco is jabbering away, we just turn and we walk towards the ocean. And I know that Franco tried to keep up with us, but I think he was actually bounced back by our bubble and he eventually just wasn't there anymore. And when we got to the ocean, the very first words that David ever said to me were, which way do you want to go? And I said, it doesn't matter. And because that was July 4th, people were setting up their barbecues on the beach. They were staking out their, their places, even that early in the morning. And we would wander from one group to the next and they would be really welcoming and tell us to come back later and what they were going to be serving. And I'm pretty sure that David knew all of these people because this wasn't a summer home for him. This was actually his only home. We spent that day in each other's company talking about everything, talking about our fears, our hopes, dreams, what we wanted to be when we grew up. And David knew that he wanted to do something with music because when he'd gone back to his house and gotten his guitar, he had started to play for me and he, he was unbelievably talented. Any song I said, he could play it and he had the most beautiful voice. Finally, we had some time where we weren't bumping into other people on the beach. And we ended up on a dock where there was a light at the end of the dock. So we weren't in the darkness. And we got to watch the fireworks go off and we were in each other's arms and we had been kissing and kissing all day in the most natural way. And he was holding me and playing his guitar at the same time as he was holding me. And it was as if we just couldn't get enough of simply touching, touching our fingers together. And at some point I realized I truly had fallen in love with this boy and I wanted to make love with him. And it would have been my first time. And I told him so. And he said, Nina, no, no. First of all, we're on a dock. Anybody could walk down this dock. And it turned out that he had already had sex. And it hadn't been this wonderful, loving experience that it should have been because the girl and he were not in love. And he said, your first time, it should be so wonderful. And you're leaving, you're moving to Fort Lauderdale and I may never ever see you again. This is not the right time and place for you. And he said, but I want to give you something. He said, I want to give you this song because you're going to need this song. This song will be your song and this song will help you and protect you. 
And so he sang me Cat Stevens' Baby Baby It's a Wild World. And then that was my song. And I had given him something too. As the sun went down, I had given him my jean jacket to wear. And uh, eventually it really was time to say goodbye. It was at one o'clock in the morning. We had spent the entire day together since about 7.30 in the morning. And I knew my mom was frantically looking for me. And I said, tell me your last name and I will never forget it. And he said, Rhinebeck, it's David Rhinebeck. And I said, okay. And we hugged one last time. I got into the back of my mom's car and I said, David Rhinebeck, David Rhinebeck, David Rhinebeck, all the way home. that, we moved to Fort Lauderdale and many 4th of Julys passed. And I started to measure all of the years by the 4th of July. And so eventually I was up north again. I was going to college. I spent one weekend driving down to Pennsylvania to see my father. And he told me that of all people, Franco was going to Penn State And I was so excited because I'd never stopped thinking of David. And I knew that if anybody knew where David was, Franco would be that person. So I called him up, he came over to my dad's and we're sitting across the kitchen table in my dad's kitchen, just Franco and I, and he's very, very handsome. And he knows how handsome he is. But to me, Franco and I might as well have been cousins. I mean, we'd known each other forever. And I could see some disgruntledness as we were talking, because what I was talking about was how I had fallen in love at first sight with David that summer. Franco was so not interested This story had nothing to do with him. So when I asked him if he knew how I could get a hold of David, he sort of smirked. And he told me that he heard that David had been in a terrible boating accident where the engine of the boat had exploded and that he had been severely burned and he he thought that he had died. And I said, Franco, How do you know this? How do you know that he died? How do you know? And he said, I don't know actually if he died, okay. But I know that he has to be crippled and he has to be severely deformed. And I pressed him for more information because I didn't care if David was deformed or crippled. He was alive and that is all I cared about. And Franco was not forthcoming with any more information, but I trusted him. I believed he knew nothing else. I mean, this was essentially a family member to me. And that was that. And then many more 4th of Julys went past and the internet started and you could search for people. And at this point in my life, I had fallen in love many times. I'd never fallen in love at first sight, but I had fallen in love with a man enough to be very happily married and have a son with him. So I was not mooning over David. I just had to make sure David was okay out there. 
and then I would feel okay. But nothing would ever come up in my searching. So a few more Fourth of Julys went past, and Facebook happened. And guess who wanted to be my friend on Facebook? It was Franco. So this time I played it a little bit more cool. I traded emails with him for about three weeks. Then we had long conversations on the phone, and finally, maybe a month or two months of this, I felt like I wouldn't scare him away by asking about David. And I said, Franco, that summer on the beach, that boy, David Reinbeck, I have never stopped thinking about him. Can you remember anything about his mom? His dad, can you think of any way that I could find him? And Franco said, "Well, first of all, you have his name wrong. It's not David Reinbeck. It's David Reinbach." And he said, "I think he is doing rock opera." And I said, "Great. First of all, it's music. Second of all, it's so esoteric. I know I'll be able to find him." So I thank Franco, and I start searching all over again. And this is crazy. But I find him. He is the backup guitarist on a woman that has a rock opera CD on her own website, and I contact her, and she calls me, and I tell her all about love at first sight in the summer of 1973 and the Fourth of July, and she loves the story. And she said, "This is so amazing, Nina, because." David Reinbach left my band two months ago, and he moved to Fort Lauderdale. And my heart skips a beat. But she says, "I don't think he's your David because I don't think he was born in 1973. I think he's about 35 years old. And at this point, I think I'm about 49 or 50. And I said, 'Oh, this is not my David.'" And I thank her, and as we're saying goodbye to each other, she says, "Wait, wait! Oh my! I think I know who you are looking for, but you have his name wrong." She said, "It's David Ryan West, and he does do rock opera." So I thanked her. I hung up, and I started to search again. And unbelievably, I found a video of a man playing guitar. And dancing, and he had blonde, spiky hair, and my David had chocolate black, thick bangs. But I took my fingers and I blocked out these blonde spikes, and I saw David, and I was so relieved. He was alive. He he looked pretty happy. He was playing music and. I only took it one step further. I googled his name in the white pages, and I, there was a phone number, and I called it, and an answering machine came on, and it, it had his voice. And I left a message. I said, "Hi, this is Nina, and I have a story for you." And then I forgot about it. It was maybe nine o'clock that night when the phone rang. The last thing I was thinking of was David. And I answered the phone and I said hello, and there was this voice that said, "Hi, this is David, and I understand you have a story for me." And I could not breathe. 
Oh, I was trying so hard. I was trying to talk and I was stumbling over my words and he said, whoa, now wait a minute. When you left the message, I couldn't understand your name. Could you just repeat your name for me? And I took a really deep breath and I said, Mina, my name is Mina. And there was this silence and and he said, oh, Nina, I kept your jean jacket for so many years. I could still smell you. And I, I felt so validated. I felt like, wow, I had made this human connection, this incredibly intense connection so many years ago. And he had two, and it was reciprocated. He had never forgotten me either. And we talked and we talked, we talked for hours and we talked just as freely as we had that summer, that day on the 4th of July. And it turns out that I had reason to be worried about him all of those years and concerned that he was all right because he hadn't been all right. In fact, when ninth grade started, he didn't even make it through that school year. He left home. He ended up in New Orleans. He was living on the street. He had his guitar. Uh, he was a heroin addict. And he eventually made his way to New York City. And this angel of a man came up to him one day and said, I hear you playing all the time. And I want to know where you get your material. And David said, I write it all myself, it's all mine. And the man said, I'd like you to come with me. And he took David to a very prestigious music school in the Northeast. And they interviewed David and they offered him a full scholarship on the spot. And they took it away just as fast when they found out that he had never finished high school. So David went back and he got his act together. He quit drugs. He got his GED and he went back to that school and he got his degree in music and he met a wonderful, beautiful woman to fall in love with and marry and he had beautiful children and everything was great. He was loved. Someone was taking care of him and it was the best news that I could have heard I was just so happy that someone that I had cared about so deeply for only a day that everything had indeed turned out wonderfully for them. What I think is so interesting about this story is that I think when people hear it, they assume they know where it's going and how it's going to end up, that David and I will ride off into the sunset. But that was never my intention when I contacted him. I felt like I just needed to check and see if he was okay. And to find out that he was loved 
and to see pictures of his kids. And one of them looked exactly like David did when he was 14. I, I couldn't have felt more generosity of the spirit. I just was truly, truly at peace. I didn't have to worry about him anymore. I met John at the end of my freshman year in college. He was an alum from our uh, small liberal arts, New England small school, uh, and he came back. He was an alum, and he came back for a fraternity party on campus, and I was there at the fraternity party. It was actually my birthday, and I was having a blast. It was the football fraternity, which is my favorite. (laughs) So we met, and we got along like a house on fire immediately. We just hit it off so well, and he was everything I wanted in a guy. He was older. He was funny, and he was an alum of the Meathead fraternity. Ding, ding, ding. So uh, we spent the night in my freshman dorm room and had a great time, and then the next morning he left his business card. And I was like, business card? He's a man, you know? It blew my 19-year-old mind that he had cards. So he left and went back to New York City, which is where he was living. Um, He was originally from the town where our college is. Uh, So he was a townie, if you will. Uh, So he went to New York City, and we started corresponding by email and by phone. And it was just so much fun and so hilarious, just quips, quips, quips. And uh, that summer, I came to New York City to visit him, and we had such a blast. I met all of his friends, and it was just so hilarious. I I felt like the guys in high school always thought I was a little bit too much. And uh, <laughs> and never quite could handle my energy. And John just embraced it. He told me I was so funny. And he, to use an improv term, really like yes anded everything I did. You know, he would just get on board with me. I remember we were riding in a cab, and I was in the back with all his pals, and he was up front talking to the cab driver. And I was like, God, John looks like that Muppet guy Smiley. And John was like, what's that? And I told him, and he, he started doing a guy smiling impression. He was like, rah, 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 you know, with the, like, flip top. And just the fact that he would, like, go with the dumb things that I came up with. He just, we were so playful together, and he was so proud of how funny I was. And he was like, you are hilarious. You were the funniest gal. And we just had such a blast. So uh, then that fall, I was a sophomore in college, and he came up for alumni weekend to visit, had so much fun. February, I came back down to New York, and we went out again with his friends, a lot of great times. And then um, sophomore spring, towards the very end of my sophomore year, I emailed him, and I invited him to my sorority formal. And I don't know why I thought a guy who was now two years out of college would want to come back to campus to go to a on-campus Formal that takes place in a dining hall. But I really thought that he'd want to come and we'd have a great time. And he wrote back and was extremely gracious and said, you know, Selena, I, I won't be coming with you to your sorority formal, um, but you know what? I actually will be in town that weekend. Uh, actually, I will be bringing my new girlfriend to meet my mom. Yeah. Oh, I was heartbroken. 
I don't know why I thought that a 23-year-old guy living in New York City would stay home at night and pine after a young girl in upstate New York in college, but I, I was bewildered. I was stunned. And I was so upset. And, oh, I remember that night so vividly. It was so pathetic and sad. I locked myself in my quad. My three roommates went out, and they were like, Selena, come out with us. And I was like, no, I'm staying here. And I listened to our song, which was Lights by Journey. I listened to it on a fucking loop. And if you're not familiar with that song, it is delightful. Uh, You probably are. It's the one that's like, when the lights go down in the city. And the best line, it's like, so you think you're lonely. Well, my friend, I'm lonely too. Oh, I listened to that for hours. I pity my neighbors. And I just, I drank a jug of wine. You know those giant jugs that have the tiny little hook, you know? Drank a jug of wine, chain-smoked cigarettes, and just cried. And a friend of mine showed up to my room and tried to help me. And, oh, no good deed goes unpunished because I just puked on his comforter. (laughs) Uh, It was a doozy of a night. Oh, and let's not forget, I also found the local phone book. Uh, and called up the house where John had grown up. <laughs> Thank Jesu, no one answered. Whoo! But it was just uh, really, really a dark time. Um, exacerbated by the fact that earlier in the day, I had actually passed John and the new girlfriend uh, in, in our cars on, on, on the street. Uh, and John and his girlfriend were driving in their open-top Jeep, and her hair was flowing, and they were smiling. And I was in my gray Altima smoking alone. <laughs> just, like, pretty sad. So, you know, that was the end of sophomore year. Life goes on. Um, I did always try to ask some friends or fraternity brothers if, you know, just sort of inquire what John was doing. And, you know, I mean, life goes on, but there's still that sort of 19-year-old crush that it's just hard to shake, you know? So, um, cut to end of senior year. I'm, you know, at a, I'm at a party downtown at a house off campus, and a girl in my sorority comes over and says, hey, Selena, I just wanted to give you a heads up. We're about to go to the bar. Uh, John's at the bar. And I am like stunned. Like I haven't seen him in years. I kind of thought I would never see him again. And I am stunned. And I literally start like shaking. I have to go to the bathroom to like calm myself down. Thank God I looked phenomenal that night. Oh, I had been working out like a motherfucker. That's what I do in stressful times. I was about to graduate. I was like, what's happening with life? Oh, I've been doing a lot of crunches. And uh, and I happened to be wearing kind of a belly top, hey, <laughs> uh, and some sort of low pants. So I was showing a lot of midriff, uh, and my hair looked phenomenal. Some things never change. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I went to the bathroom, like, got my shit together, and then I was like, let's go to the village tavern. Like, here we go. Let's go. Like, I felt like a boxer before a fight. I'm like, bring it, bring it. I was so excited to bump into him. So... We go to the bar, and there's a, it's a wonderful like, kind of towny bar, and there's a, uh, a circular bar at, at, a circular bar within the tavern. And I walk in, and I see him across the bar. And, of course, I, I pretend that I don't see him, because that's what you do, you know. And I just sort of chat with my friends, and he comes right over uh, and is like, Selena, I've been reading your column in the newspaper. What's this about hooking up with a towny, huh? And my heart skipped a beat. I'd been writing a column in the on-campus newspaper for the whole spring of my senior year, and apparently he had been reading it, and that just blew my mind. Uh, and he was like, "You're an amazing writer, and I'm not surprised at all. You're so funny. Of course, you have a column." And uh, oh, it just warmed my heart. You know, I mean, it, 
not only was he the first guy to know I was funny, then he was like kind of the first guy to validate my writing, and it just blew my mind. So we had another great night together, uh, and and I sort of was like, oh, this is closure, you know? One last hurrah, this is closure, right? No, it's not. It fucking starts it all over again. Like, closure would be walking away, you know? It was not closure at all. It completely reignited everything. Um, but, you know, it was one night, I was graduating, uh, and then I moved to Chicago, and then, you know, just sort of went about my life. But was always checking the alumni review to see what he was doing, and just always so curious about what was happening, and so embarrassed at how I had fallen so hard. So, cut to this past winter, um, I, I graduated college in 2002. So cut to this winter, um, my alma mater calls me and says, hey, we want to do a stand-up and storytelling show at the reunion this year in June, so will you come back? And it was not my reunion year, but I am a sucker for dollar drafts. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I will go to get some cheap brews, fine. Uh, and, I, and I absolutely adore my alma mater. So um, a couple weeks ago, I went up to my school, and, uh, and I drove up with a bunch of stand-ups and storytellers from New York, and we had some drinks on campus and then uh, went downtown to the bar downtown. And I'd been thinking in my head, I'd kind of done the math and I was like, oh, it's, it's John's year. Um, he'll be there. But I knew from the, reading the alumni review, I knew that he was married and he had two kids and, you know, life goes on. But I was like, oh, I wonder if he'll be there. I wonder if he'll be there with his wife. I wonder if he'll be there with his kids. I wonder if it'll be a very curt hello or maybe he won't even be there at all. He has two kids and he doesn't live nearby anymore. So... Uh, I go, and we go down to the tavern downtown, and I walk in, circular bar, and I look across the bar, and there's John, same spot. And I'm like, and again, I pretend I don't see him, and I just, like, chat with my friends, because I don't know if he's there with his wife or his kids. You know, I just, I'm like, I'm going to keep some boundaries up, because I've been in therapy. (laughs) So I just sort of kick it with some of my gals for about 30 minutes, and then I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go to the bar, and I'm going to deliberately make eye contact with him. So I go over, and I look at him from across the bar, and he waves across a really crowded, loud bar. Uh, And then the bartender hands me a shot of Jameson and says, this is from the gentleman across the bar. And I look over, and he's taking a shot, so I take a shot. And then I go over to him, and I'm like, thank you so much, uh, you know, for the shot. And then we just start talking, and we talk for hours about, you know, he tells me about his wife and his wonderful kids, and he shows me photos and his career, and I tell him about, you know, moving from Chicago to Boston to New York and doing stand-up for eight years, and he's selling a book, and it just came out, and, you know, I'm doing a lot for that, and, and we just catch up about everything, and I have a chance to say something to him that I've been wanting to say for 11 years. I hadn't seen him. That last across-the-bar look was 11 years ago. And I just said, John, I was like, I'm so embarrassed at how I behaved. I was so head over heels for you. And I was so young. And I was so just excited because you were nice to me. And no guy had ever been nice to me and fucking believed in me. And you just thought I was so funny. And you were just, you had my back. And you were the first guy who'd ever been like that to me. And John was so gracious. And he was like, of course, you're such an amazing person and it was just I mean it was the kind of conversation where if I saw this play out in a movie I would be like shut the fuck up that never fucking happens no one gets closure like that but I did and I couldn't believe it and we just had such an amazing conversation for so many hours about everything and he was so curious about what I was doing and he was so 
on board with it. And finally, it came time to sort of call it a night. And he was like, well, what now? See you in five years? And I was like, no, I'm not on the same rotation as you. I, I'm just here for this stand-up and storytelling show, so I'll probably never see you again. And he was like, God, that's, that's you know, what, what, that's crazy. And I was like, no, maybe, maybe that's good. You know, you told me that I was funny, and you told me that I was a good writer, and you told me that I should love myself. And now I'm a comedian, and I'm a writer, and I finally love myself. And maybe we get to say goodbye, and this is how the story ends. Thank you. That is all for this week, folks. This is Waterdeep behind me now, and we just heard from the wonderful, the fabulous Miss Selena Kopic. You can find her at selenakopic.com. Risk is live in Austin, Texas on August 29th. On September 25th, we're in Chicago, and on September 26th, we're in New York and Los Angeles. Go to risk-show.com tour to find out 
when we are appearing live next. If you love this podcast, there are episodes that you must not miss in the album section of the iTunes store. Those are the three all-star episodes, and the whole first season of the show is being put there in the album section. Those all-star episodes are just $2.99 each, and the classic episodes are just $0.99 cents each. you got to get there and get yourself some more of these not-to-be-missed Risk episodes. If you've been interested in maybe taking a workshop with the Story Studio, but you would rather do it in your own time, online, watching videos, and doing exercises in a supplementary workbook, go to thestorystudio.org because we have our online course there called Storytelling for Business. And finally, Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network, and we are listener-supported. We very, very, very much so need your help. I really can't stress that enough. I have no health insurance, no dental insurance. I'm losing my teeth, and I'm applying for government assistance. I had a fan at Risk Show just this past Thursday who said, aren't you rolling in stamps.com money? Yeah, we really, really need your help to keep this thing going. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and participate. Become a member and make sure this show doesn't have to go away. And with that said, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. lucky you are not to have one. Hearts will never be practical until they can be made unbreakable. And remember, my sentimental friend, that a heart is not judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. Oh.